Hi, and welcome to Power of 10, a podcast about design operating at many levels, zooming out from thoughtful detail through to organizational transformation and onto changes in society and the world. My name's Andy Pallain. I'm a service design and innovation consultant, educator, and writer. My guest today is Jeff Sussner, an internationally recognized IT coach and design thinking practitioner. Jeff specializes in helping digital organizations build continuous learning cultures. His career spans 30 years of building systems and leading organizations across the entire product development and operations spectrum. He's especially known for introducing the global DevOps community to the importance of empathy and is the author of Designing Delivery, Rethinking IT in the Digital Service Economy. Jeff, welcome to Power of 10. Thank you. Happy to be here. So the first question is in this uh in this current climate is, you know, how are you doing and, and what's going on in your world? <laughs> uh, I'm doing as well as can be hoped, I think. Um, it's funny because have reached that point of my life where I've started thinking about downsizing where I live. And at the moment, mm-hmm. I'm really happy I haven't because uh, <laughs> right. I have enough space so that my family members and I don't get completely in each other's faces and we can do our work in our own rooms. Um, and where we live, there's enough room to walk without running into people. Uh, right. It was interesting. There's a park nature preserve just down the street from us. And I was walking on the sidewalk there the other day. Mm-hmm. And another person came along and we both made a conscious effort to walk as far apart from each other as we could. And it was it was a really interesting kind of new uh, sort of social uh, protocol, if you will, that yeah. we were doing, yeah. you know, that we both knew what to do. And we looked at each other like, yup. We're going to do this and we know why. And it was really interesting. <laughs> I've noticed a lot of um, intense kind of investigative stares. I, think <laughs> I, I feel like kind of as I walk past people, because we, I live sort of very close to the countryside and, you know, I can go easily. I live in a wine region, so it's easy for us to go up and kind of walk amongst the uh, vineyards and stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you meet people on the way and everyone's kind of looking at each other as they go for like tanks, right? The sort of turret mm-hmm. swivels as you kind right. of look at each other from a distance. Seeing, I, I'm sure people are going, oh, is, that, is that person's nose a bit red? Have they got, are they sniffling, you know? Yeah, um, on the to, other to, hand, to kind of I, check the other person out. I live in Minnesota, which is not the most outgoing culture on the planet. And uh, we are all smiling in at each other a lot more now because we're much more eager for social contact than we have been. Yeah. It's really funny. One of the other hosts of on this is HCD, Dr. John Curran. Um, I just did a kind of recording with him the other day. And we were saying how, uh, well, he was saying actually that social distancing is actually the wrong phrase, and that physical distancing is really right. what it is. And actually, a lot of people have got to know their neighbours and uh, sort of people in their neighbourhood um, through social distancing because <laughs> you know people are starting to kind of pull together as a community. It's interesting. Isn't it? So has it changed your work too much? Uh, so far, no. Uh, I have not yet done my first fully remote workshop. So mm-hmm. I think that will be a real adventure. Um, you know, I, I work in an industry. I, I'm a consultant. I work with clients. So, um, you know, my clients are typically 
IT digital service people. So there's always somebody working from home. Uh, right. So the so the basic concept it's 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 not a thing where we have to be next to each other in order to get our work done. Uh, one thing that's really interesting is that agile traditionally really emphasizes face-to-face contact right, um, yeah. that you can solve problems together better when you're standing in a room together. Uh, and you know, one of the things that's come up in agile is things like Jira. And there's been a certain pushback against that of, well, maybe instead of, you know, pushing tickets around in Jira, we should just stand in front of a whiteboard together and put stickies up on the wall. So I think all of that is being challenged. Um, and again, I, I think, um, you're right that through this social distancing in a certain sense, we're all going to learn how to collaborate better. Um, because while we may be on Zoom or whatever the case may be, there will actually be a thirst um, to work together, um, you know, talking to and seeing each other as opposed to just kind of putting, pushing tickets around through queues. And yeah, yeah. when you look at things like Agile and DevOps and Lean and the whole idea of avoiding queues and solving problems together, I think we may actually get better at it as a result of all of this. Yeah. Uh, you still think sort of remotely though. I mean, as in, you know, working remotely, but sort of working together. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, well, let's, let's wind back a little bit and, um, cause I, I sort of jumped into how things are doing in the, in the world of the new world of remote everything. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you do and how you've got to where you, you are. So how I got to where I am is a long story. It started with being a liberal arts student in college and being surrounded by uh, creative people. My father ran an architecture firm for many years, and when he retired, he became a watercolor painter. So I've been very strongly influenced by designers and artists while not being one myself, particularly. And one thing led to another, and I found myself wandering into the world of software development in the 1980s uh, and did that for many years and then discovered the world of software operations and data center operations. So I kind of have the perfect DevOps uh, portfolio or background, if you will, but there was always Mm. this kind of design art thing in the background that I didn't quite know what to do. And then about 10 years ago, a couple of things happened simultaneously that really profoundly impacted my approach to my work. The first was I read Tim Brown's book, um, Change by Design, and was introduced to design thinking, which led me to discover service design. And at the same Mm -hmm. time, cloud computing was happening in my industry. Uh, And the fundamental promise behind cloud computing is that software becomes service. So the idea of service and service design and service operations came together in my brain. And basically what I've been doing ever since is trying to figure out how to bring those worlds together, um, how to get IT people to think in terms of service, uh, service to customers and service to each other, and how to get design and product people to think in terms of operations. Uh, One of the things about digital service is that the way that you build and the way that you deliver and operate it actually becomes part of the user experience. So they all need to come together. 
So in terms of my work at this point, it's really about teaching organizations how to collaborate through mutual service in the broadest sense possible. Yeah. So in, in your book, you talk about... Um... Oh, no, no, coming back to coming, oh, I'm going to start again. <clears throat> so in your experience, have you found that designers don't really think about how the, the operational side of things as part of the experience? Sadly, I would say that that is true. I can give you a couple of examples. One is um, I was very excited when I started um, navigating through the world of service design and discovering the notion of the customer journey and also the service blueprint. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, what I found too often is service design focusing primarily on the customer journey and not yeah. nearly enough on con connecting the service blueprint. Another more concrete example, I did a workshop uh, on uh, promise-driven service design um, mm. The idea of resilient, uh, emergent service design at a conference of design leaders and managers. So these were all people who'd been designing something for 10 or more years. And I gave them an exercise, which was imagine that you have an e-commerce site and a customer has gone through a long, complicated process of searching and browsing and finding products and adding them to their shopping cart, and they're about ready to check out, and the database crashes. What is the experience like? And everybody's eyes got really big because they had never thought about the idea that the database might crash. Right. And traditionally, that's IT's problem. IT is supposed to make sure that the database doesn't crash. And we do a lot of work and we spend tens of millions of dollars making sure that the database doesn't crash, or if it crashes, there's a redundant database so nobody knows, so on and so forth. Yeah. But guess what? In complex service-driven IT systems, things break. Yeah. And you cannot completely prevent or predict failure. So this is something that you need to think about from an experience perspective. It's something that the, this room full of experienced designers had never considered. Now, the cool thing is that once they considered it, they came up with some really great stuff. Yeah. So it's just about making sure that's part of the conversation. Right? Yes. So I have to say, I'm, I'm going to defend service design a little bit here because for, for, <laughs> for my money, the, the, I, I completely recognize the, um, well, the symptoms that you're, you're describing, and I have seen that myself. Um, you know, and I think that one of the things that, at least in, in, and we talk about in our book quite a lot, is you know, service design is the front stage and the backstage. And you know, the thing that I like about uh, service blueprints being a, not so much as deliverable, which they sort of have become as a th big poster that people put on the wall, but as a an artifact through which people have conversations about it is that whether in front of that thing or asynchronously, you can have that conversation. Uh, and I remember one very clearly with a bank, actually. And the bank said, um, we were talking about sort of different customer experiences and improving it and so forth. And the um, a couple of IT folks in the room, and that was the important part, right? You have this multidisciplinary group of people in the room said, this is all very well and I, I applaud it. It's really great. 
but we've underfunded for the last because this was post GFC. So we've underfunded our our um, back end, our technology um, for the last four or five years. There's no way we can deliver this um, without the whole thing kind of falling over. And so for me, that was one of the kind of really crucial bits. Is if you're not having that conversation at the time, for my money, you're not really doing service design properly. Um, but I think it's I think it's kind of partly maybe it's what what's happened in the US a bit where sort of UX and service design have become conflated a little bit, where UX is seen as the kind of umbrella and service design as a as a thing underneath. Whereas in in Europe and particularly Northern Europe and Scandinavia, I think it's it's um, still seen the other way around. Um, but I absolutely agree. I kind of think that's a problem. Now you talked. There's a couple of things you've just touched on that I really want to come back to. Um, uh, before I do, you, you talk in the book about IT as a conversational medium, and I thought this was a kind of really interesting kind of lens. Um, can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's funny because um, while I work in what might be called IT or information technology, I've I've never really liked that term IT. And maybe it's because traditionally it was seen as or sometimes manifested as lacking in creativity or imagination. Um, but I've started to think that there's something deeper at play, which is that um, back in the old days, we called it MIS, Management Information System. The idea was that managers needed a bunch of information in order to make decisions, and the job of MIS systems was to provide that information. But I think that IT has exploded way beyond that in the internet and the online service world is, and I mean, we're seeing it this week and this month, is we are all engaging with each other through digital technologies. It's gone from being how companies got information to how companies actually function. So I think it's become literally a medium that we converse with each other and we converse with our customers through that medium. Um, I've actually played with the idea of using IT to refer to interaction technology because it's the technology that we use to interact with each other. Um, but the point is, its job is no longer to produce a thing. Um, its job is to be more like air or water um, that we kind of fly around or swim around in as we, um, first as we did business together, but this week as we even, you know, have friends and families with each other. Um, you know, I, there, there, there are people getting married online now because they can't go to the church to get married. So in that sense, the IT becomes, or technology loosely, um, becomes this medium through which we not only have conversations, but actually just kind of have social interactions as well, right? Right. And so it brings us kind of neatly onto the example of um, this idea that you were just talking about, which is that sort of service outages are um our service experiences too and quite often the that um 
that sort of back end or that backstage that's mediating. Well, not so, bad. so I mean, when I've talked about backstage, I talk about it's supporting the service experience, right, and the employees. And so in the, in your book, you also talk about um, you have this idea of you know service outages as service experiences. And the example you give is a weary traveller. This must have happened to a lot of people recently. Uh, checks into a hotel or goes into a hotel, arrives at the hotel and says, hi, I'd like to check in. I've got a room. And the um, person on reception says, I'm sorry, I can't check you in. The check-in system's down. Um, and that that's, that that's obviously part of the service experience. And you and you sort of elaborate and talk about how many people sort of just don't just say, oh, no, my flight's been cancelled. It's like, oh, guess what? They kind of expect it to, to fail. <laughs> Which kind of leads to this idea of services as a, as a chain of promises. And I think this is a really kind of nice idea. I also think, it's an, incidentally, that I've often said that sort of error messages and kind of failures are, are lost touch points, right? Because they're often not really designed. They, they kind of become the default mm-hmm. thing. It's like a kind of a bit of the wiring starts kind of poking through the, the sort of circuit board. <laughs> um, you know, when you go to it, you go, I see it a lot in airports, as you go to airports where you see a, um, you know, big display monitor that should have some flight information or a kind of advert on it and it's just got one of those kind of Windows NT alert bo- error boxes kind of floating around. I think, wow, someone could have designed that. So right. um, so tell us about this idea of services as a chain chain of promises because um, mm-hmm. it's really – there's also a more recent Medium article, right, You called Vis- Visible Promises and How to Move Fast Without Breaking Things. And I th- there's some really nice points in it, so I'm going to let you say it in your own words. So one of the things that has come out of the IT world um, in the last several years through the mechanism of DevOps is thinking about how digital systems um, become more and more complex uh, in the sense that there are a lot of moving parts that interact with each other in very fluid ways. So you can't pull them apart and say, well, we're going to worry about this piece over here yeah. and we're going to worry about that piece over there. And as long as the two pieces work, the whole system will work. You know, if you're dealing with a car, you know, as long as the engine and the transmission and the drivetrain all work properly, there's an assumption that the car will work properly. Yeah. But when you see the kinds of complex systems that you find in the natural and the social world, those rules don't apply in the same way. And one of the things that service and in particular digital service bring to bear is this shift from complicated, predictable systems to complex, unpredictable ones. And one of the things about complex systems is that they fail. They fail in ways that you cannot uh, avoid or predict. Um, they have a certain sloppy resilience, which allows them to survive that failure as long as you take a different approach to them. Uh, there was some very groundbreaking work uh, by a researcher named Mark Burgess, who developed something called promise theory, which is a way of modeling complex systems from the perspective of uh, components voluntarily working together in order to create systems that work, Mm. which is a real shift from the sort of top-down model of, you know, you have the boss and the boss's boss and everybody tells everybody what to do and it gets down to the bottom level and somebody says, okay, my job is to move this widget uh, from this part of the factory floor to that part of the factory floor. It kind of flips it upside down. And the notion is that we all make promises to each other which are commitments to provide some kind of benefit, to help each other get something done. Yeah. 
And there are, there are a couple of important aspects to promises. One is it's a very customer-centered, outcome-centered approach to designing and, and operating systems. And the other, though, is the reason we use the word promise is that we don't always keep our promises. Sometimes we break them. And I like to use the example of the teenager promising to clean his bedroom, right? <laughs> what's, what's the likelihood that he's actually going to get it done? Oh, it's about 50%. So this is actually really good because it forces us to account for the possibility of failure, which ironically gives us a better chance of success. And on the one mm, hand, you nice. could say, if we go back to our database example, well, if I assume that the database might crash, I'll spend a bunch of extra money in engineering in order to build a redundant uh, clustered database system so that if one database crashes, I don't care because I have another one that's still functioning. Mm. On the other hand, it leads us to do things like say, well, what happens to the user experience if the database crashes? Um, how can I continue to provide a quality experience? Um, how can I think from the perspective of what is it the customer is trying to accomplish? What they're trying to accomplish is to get off the airplane and get into a hotel room and be able to relax. And how can I make sure that I can help them have that experience even if the check-in system is down or I'm overbooked or so on and so forth? Yeah. And the other um, thing that I want to emphasize about promises is the core of my work with my clients now is something called promise-driven delivery, which is thinking about all of the parts of the organization as making promises to each other and really breaking down this idea that there are customers out there and then there are employees in here. Um, yeah. One of the challenges we face when we talk about things like making the whole organization customer-centered, well, how do you do that when you have 500 or 1,000 or 20,000 employees? Um, you can't just put everybody in front of the customer. You can't just kind of hardwire, well, this is what the customer wants, so everybody's supposed to work on that. It needs to be more flexible and more emergent than that. And so if we look at it as, from the perspective of teams and departments and management levels all treating each other as customers and providing service to each other yeah. and making promises to each other, we actually create this emergent, uh, constantly evolving, adaptive, and resilient uh, approach to being customer-centered. That's nice. There's a, um, there's a thing that uh, you know we talk about when trying to validate services and you're you know you're doing prototypes and the, which is this idea of you know there's a kind of i mean i think they're hierarchical others will say that doesn't matter which order they're in but there's a kind of set of questions which is um you know do people understand what this thing is what this service is do they understand the value proposition and um then do they understand the value to their lives because obviously there's a situation where they might go yeah i understand what this is but it's not for me and then there's the the next set of questions are you know do they understand how to use it do they do they understand the affordances and so on and forth the sort of you know the knobs and levers of how the thing works and um quite often 
design teams start at, at that kind of at that one, which is you know do people understand how to use it, uh, without kind of validating the first bit. And I always think, uh, poor the, the poor Google Wave folks, but I always think of something like Google Wave, where it's like yeah, here's a thing, and I kind of get it, but I don't, I don't really know why it exists, right? And then you know, obviously it doesn't exist anymore. There's a there's a, a sort of similar thing I found when you were talking about um, making promises vid, uh, visible and asking a set of questions which are actually very simple. And um, I, I wondered if you might kind of run through those those promises or, or those questions about promises, about making the promises video, visible. Yeah, so um, when I talk to people about promises and promise-driven delivery, there's a level at which they get it almost immediately because the word promise means exactly what you think it does it means the same thing that it means in ordinary usage we make promises to each other all the time right mm -hmm. i promise i'll clean my room i promise i'll do the dishes i promise i'll take out the trash right um and sometimes we get the dishes done and sometimes we don't um and the the better a job we do at keeping those promises, the better harmony we have in our household. Um, so there's nothing mysterious about it. And what they catch on to is the first question is quite simply, what promises are we making to our customers and each other? What is the purpose and benefit of what we're doing? And companies make implicit promises all the time. Uh, there's a reason that people use Slack or Zoom or Jira or whatever the case may be. There's something mm -hmm. they're trying to accomplish. Um, it fits in very nicely with the, the whole idea of jobs to be done. Uh, you know, what are, what are you trying to get done that you need help with? Yeah. And as a company, if I start by thinking about what I'm helping you to accomplish, uh, the example I use there is why is it that people get frustrated when hotel Wi-Fi is really bad? <laughs> because what we're trying to accomplish when we stay in a hotel is not just have a place to sleep. Um, we are on a trip somewhere, mm. whether that be a trip to take our kids to Disneyland or a trip to speak at a conference or a trip to close some sales deals. There's something we're trying to accomplish and, and the hotel needs to help us. So we need to get a decent night's sleep. We need to be able to get some decent food. We probably need to either do some work or make some reservations for the ride at Disneyland or whatever the case may be. So if we think about it from a truly customer-centered lens, what is the fundamental promise we're making? Then we start to understand why things like hotel Wi-Fi is important. And then the next question is, well, how well are we keeping those promises? So, you know, if our fundamental promise is to help the customer have a satisfactory trip and they're a business customer and they need to uh, you know, access their work email and the Wi-Fi is terrible or expensive or whatever the case may be, yeah. then we're not doing a very good job of keeping that promise, right? We may have very comfortable beds and we may have a very nice buffet from nine o'clock in the morning, but we're at least partly failing at the basic value proposition. And that leads us into a continuous process of asking, well, how can we do a better job 
of keeping our promises. And it also leads us to a more interesting question, particularly from a design perspective of, are we actually making the right ones? Yeah. Um, it may be that the promise we're making is just, um, we'll give you a comfortable bed and a decent breakfast in the morning. And when we look at it from the perspective of what, why are our customer here, um, we recognize that the real promise is to help them have a successful trip. And by the way, I need to give credit for, uh, to Airbnb um, because a number of years ago, an Airbnb designer gave a talk at a service design conference where she said that uh, Airbnb had had an epiphany when they realized that the product was the trip. In yeah. other words, people didn't reserve rooms in a house because they wanted a room in a house. They reserved a room in a house because, uh, I mean, the, the origin was of Airbnb was people were trying to get to South by Southwest and they couldn't find places to stay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the point of the exercise was not to have a place to stay. The point of the exercise was to be able to go to South by Southwest. Yeah. And so it's, it's really a very simple process of um, building in this continuous process of asking ourselves, um, what is the value that we're trying to provide? Is that the right value? How well are we succeeding? And again, that comes from the DevOps world of saying, okay, we need to be continuously learning from failure because failure is always happening in a complex environment. And it's a feedback mechanism, right? And it is a feedback mechanism, yeah. yes. And the more continuous we make that feedback mechanism, and the more we focus on adaptation and improvement as opposed to sort of trying to get it right all the way the first time, yeah. um, the more value we can provide over time. But you don't just stop there because you also oh, – this is one of the things I thought was nice about this set of questions was you – you go on to these last two, which are what promises from others do we depend on? Uh, and most importantly, what promises do our customers make? So you sort of extend beyond, it's not just a one-sided thing, right? Right. And so the first question is really about sort of breaking down um, boundaries between levels um, and thinking about it in terms of mutual service. That in order for the hotel to provide good Wi-Fi, um, they rely on, or not Wi-Fi, but good internet connectivity. They rely on service from their internet provider. Yeah. Um, and so when they're thinking about, okay, we've installed all of these Wi-Fi repeaters all the way through, you know, we have one in every room in our hotel now. Um, they also need to think about things like, well, how reliable is our internet provider? Yeah. And and that goes all the way into the into the company of um, one of the things we do now is we we have this idea of of breaking systems down into these little two pizza sized product teams where we have a nice cross functional team mm. um, and you've got a designer and you've got a developer and you've got a tester and you've got an ops person and they all have pizza together and they go out to lunch together. Um, maybe they do it over Zoom now. <laughs> yeah, um, they have Zoom lunch that's, together. That's but anyway. Yeah. Um, but that misses the question of, well, that's great. How do we put all of these pieces back together into a coherent, holistic service without reintroducing all of the friction and brittleness we were trying to get away from in the first place? Yeah. 
And the answer is by thinking about um, the promises we make to each other, the promises that we depend on from others, whether it be I depend on service from the database or I depend on an API from this other team, or I depend on the design ops groups to develop a design system that I can use so that I can uh, build consistent interfaces um, quickly. Um, so we, the, the question of, of promises we provide to others and promises we depend on from others is basically saying that we are all at every level now in the service business. So if you are a design system team, um, your, your job is not just to build a design system. Your job is to serve the teams that depend on that system. Um, and that may seem like a simple, but I think it's a subtle and important difference. And then the question of the promises that our customers make is one that I find is really helpful for, for really answering this question of what are the right promises to make. So it's about asking, why are you using my service? So if I'm a parent, um, I've promised to show my kids a good time on vacation. Mm. And that creates a whole set of stresses and expectations that I need the hotel's help with. Um, if I'm a business person or a salesperson, and I've promised to close some sales in order to make my quarterly numbers, that creates a whole set of stresses and expectations that I need help with. Yeah. And if, if I'm the service provider and I'm trying to figure out, well, why am I really in business? What is my purpose? Well, my purpose is to help Andy. Well, what, what is it that Andy needs to accomplish? What are the things that drive him? Um, so this is really all about trying to think in terms of networks of needs and networks of expectations and networks of value that we can offer to each other in order to help each other get things done for our own and others' benefit. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's such a great lens because it's, um, I think it really shows that kind of interconnectedness. But I mean, going back to the Airbnb example, obviously there's promises in all sorts of directions because they have two sets of customers, right? Obviously they're hosts and, and they're um, guests. And, and so the hosts are making promises to the guests as well, as well as the, you know, when, you know, when the guests are also making a promise that, you know, I'm not going to trash your place and have a party. And so, and, and if I do, then the promise now from Airbnb is, you know, we'll, we'll recompense the host and we'll kind of get rid of those guests off the platform and so forth and you see a kind of you know it's interesting because obviously the, the probably the most ubiquitous promise that there is in the world is money right because money is obviously is uh, yeah, what used to say it on i don't know if it says it on us dollar bills but on the uk um pound notes it used to say i promise to pay the bearer i promise to pay the bearer of this you know 10 pounds or whatever so money mm -hmm. is obviously money is money are ious right they're promises um, right. which are just constantly in circulation. So then this kind of never get cashed in. Right? It, it, you, you can mm -hmm. no longer go into the Bank of England and ask for your gold. But you used to be able to. <laughs> I mean, you used to be able to. That's what it was, right? Ultimately, uh -huh. it kind of came back to that. Um, right. You know, and uh, as you saw with the global financial crisis, when those promises, that trust starts to break down, of, oh, I don't think you're going to keep your promise, then everything seizes up. And it's interesting right now, we're just talking right at the sort of beginning or 
as I'd say, the middle of the beginning of the coronavirus kind of outbreak. And there's a lot of stuff going on where you're seeing what promises are being made, what promises are able to get uh, be kept. Uh, and, you know, also that responsibility to each other. You know, we talked um, uh, uh, just sort of early on about kind of, um, you know, going out you know, for a walk where you're you're as you walk past someone, you know, everyone's practicing the social distancing. So you're kind of keeping that, you know, there's this new social etiquette of of keeping your distance, right? Um, and, right. And, and I, I know, promise not to walk infect, within six yeah, feet of yeah. you. I promise not yeah. to infect you. I promise not to <laughs> go and um, clear out the supermarket shelves of toilet paper, you know, all that kind right. of stuff. And you're right. seeing yeah. how kind of there's different levels of, you know, people honoring those promises or, or not. It, it's kind of fascinating. So that's why I think it's a kind of a brilliant lens. And how have you cool. found this has landed kind of with um, – different parts of the organization with, you know, the the management and sort of business um, sort of C-suite folks versus, you know, IT leadership versus, you know, people really on the front line? Well, I think the interesting thing is um, one of the things that we're going through right now, when you look at things like Agile and DevOps, is deeply within them is the notion of higher trust organizations mm -hmm. that in the 21st century digital service economy, blah, 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 um, you know, workers and teams need more empowerment and more autonomy. And the notion of a promise is it's something voluntary. It's the converse of a a requirement or an imposition, mm. right? We make a promise to you is different from you told us what to do. And yeah. I, there's a certain tension happening as organizations are learning how to do this. In some cases, you will see leadership really liking promises from the perspective of, well, I'm as the CEO or the CTO or the head of sales or whatever, uh, I make promises to customers and I need my employees to keep those promises. <laughs> right? Yeah. This doesn't quite, doesn't quite work like that. Um, so there's a certain uh, bumpiness, which is completely natural as organizations are trying to adopt things like agile in a bigger sense and grappling with the sort of underlying post-Taylorist, if you will, uh, ways of thinking that are required. Um, one of the other unintended consequences that I hope uh, will be an outcome of this fully remote working is it's a lot harder to micromanage people's time. Yeah, you have to trust them, right? You have to trust them. And I think that's a really good thing. And in my kind of fantasy world, um, you know, a year from now, this whole idea of kind of top-down 20th century management will be a thing of the past because it was, we just for, were forced to assume that people are going to get up in the morning and get on Zoom or Teams or Slack or whatever it is and do their work together. And that good work will happen. Um, my sense is that we're going to learn a lot about, hopefully, the, the good side of people in the next year. 
um, and that we're going to learn about it in the social realm, but also in the in the workplace realm as the nature of the workplace fundamentally changes. Well, the great thing is we'll have a kind of huge case study and loads of evidence <laughs> to show it. Well, I mean, literally say, listen, you're you're asking me to do this thing, you know, during this crisis, we we did this without you kind of, you know, uh, micromanaging me. You know, and here's the evidence to prove it. You know. This seems like a good uh, a good place to to wrap up. As you know, um, you know, I the podcast is named after the the Eames film Powers of Ten about the kind of relative size of things in the universe. And one of the things I ask every guest is, you know, what what one small thing either that is is well designed and overlooked, or and it really needs to be redesigned, um, has an outsized influence on the world. So. What came to mind for me is opportunities to do nothing. And let me explain <laughs> what I mean by that. Um, I went to a wonderful art installation at the Minneapolis Institute of Art by Robert Wilson, mm. um, who's uh, got a... How do you describe what he does? Uh, he does very postmodern visual art installation like theater pieces. Yeah. And he did this wonderful, very visually rich art installation. But the first room, you were brought into the room. It was almost entirely pitch black. And you were asked to sit quietly in that room for five minutes before you went into the rest of the show. And once you did that, everything else was so much richer nice. and so much more compelling to look at. And one of the things that we're all learning right now is to deal with a certain amount of boredom and stir craziness, yeah. right? You can't go to the movies. Yeah. You can't go out to dinner. Um, you can't go to a bar or a party with your friends. So we're all being sort of thrown back on ourselves and having to spend a certain amount of time sort of just being with ourselves. Yeah. And I think injecting that into our lives and our work, you know, having opportunities at the beginning of a meeting for everybody to just sit quietly for two minutes without saying anything. Um, I think could have a tremendous amount of power in helping us all be together and yeah. accomplish things, but also just live our lives together. That's very, very nice indeed. So um, I shall try and find some links to that. Was uh, was that the China's Last Dynasty uh, installation from Robert Wilson? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll put them in the show notes. So where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me at susna-associates.com. They can find me on Twitter at Jeff Susna. That's J-E-F-F-S-U-S-S-N-A. Correct. Yep. And that's probably the best place to look for me. They'll find you on LinkedIn and Medium and other places too. I'll make sure there's some notes. Jeff, thank you so much for being my guest on Power of 10, and I hope you stay sane and safe uh, during this time. Thanks. Same to you and all your listeners, and thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to Power of 10. If you want to learn more about other shows on the This Is HCD network, go to thisishcd.com, where you'll find ProdPod with Adrian Tan, Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, Ethnopod with Jay Hasbrook, Bringing Design Closer and Getting Started in Design with Jerry Scallion, and Talking Shop with Jerry, myself, and some of the other hosts. You'll also find the transcripts and links to this show, and you can sign up to our newsletter or join our Slack channel and connect with other designers around the world. My name's Andy Polane. You can find me at polane.com or apolane on Twitter. Thanks for listening and see you next time.